their experience with the television audience. Since almost no one knew this little fact, Altea could use her prior knowledge of the woman and her son to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Naturally, I pointed out this fact, but, incredibly, the woman denied having previously met with Altea, and the exchange was simply edited out of the show. I doubt that Altea deliberately deceives her audiences by consciously using cold reading techniques. Rather, I believe she developed a belief in her own psychic powers and innocently learned cold reading by trial and error. Whether we are talking about rats pressing a bar to get food or humans playing a Las Vegas slot machine, it only takes an occasional hit to keep them coming back for more. Altea's belief and behavior were shaped by operant conditioning on a variable ratio schedule of reinforcement. That is, lots of misses but just enough hits to shape and maintain the behavior. Positive feedback in the form of happy customers paying up to $200 per session was a mechanism sufficient to reinforce her own belief in her powers and to encourage her to hone her mentalist skills. The same explanation probably holds for the master of cold reading in the psychic world, James Von Prague, who wowed audiences for months on NBC's New Age talk show, The Other Side, until he was debunked on Unsolved Mysteries. Here's how that happened. I was asked to sit in a room with nine other people. Von Prague was asked to do a reading on each of us, all of whom had lost a loved one. I worked closely with the producers to ensure that Von Prague would have no prior knowledge of any of us. In addition to subscribing to demographic marketing journals so that they can make statistically educated guesses about subjects based on age, gender, race, and residence, mentalists have been known to go as far as running a name through a detective agency. But in this instance, Von Prague's readings would have to be cold indeed. With most of this, Von Prague figured out the cause of death through a technique I had not seen before. He would rub either his chest or his head and say, I'm getting a pain here watching the subject's face for feedback. After the third time, it suddenly struck me why. Most people die from heart, lung, or brain failure, regardless of the specific cause, such as heart attack, stroke, lung cancer, drowning, falling, or an automobile accident. With several subjects, he got nothing and said so. I'm not getting anything. I'm sorry. If it's not there, it's not there. For most of us, however, he got many details, as well as the specific cause of death, but not without lots and lots of misses. For the first two hours, I kept track of the number of no's and negative head shakes. There were well over a hundred misses for only a dozen or so hits. Given time and enough questions, anyone with a little training could become sensitive enough to do exactly what Von Prague does. I also noticed that during the tape-changing breaks, Von Prague would make small talk with the people in the room. Who are you here for, he asked one woman. She told him it was her mother. Several readings later, Von Prague turned to the woman and said, I see a woman standing behind you. Is that your mother? At all times, he kept it positive. Our loved ones forgive us for any wrongdoing. They still love us. They suffer no more. They want us to be happy. What else would he say? Your father wants you to know he will never forgive you for wrecking his car? The most dramatic moment of the day came when Von Prague got the name of a couple's son who had been killed in a drive-by shooting. I'm seeing the letter K, he proclaimed. Is it Kevin or Ken? The mother responded tearfully in a cracking voice, Yes, Kevin. We were all astonished. 
Then I noticed around the mother's neck a large heavy ring with the letter K inscribed in diamonds on a black background. Von Prague denied having seen the ring when I pointed it out on camera. In 11 hours of taping and small talk during the breaks, surely he saw the ring. I did, and he's the professional. The reactions of the audience members I found even more intriguing than the mentalist techniques of Altea and Von Prague. Every person at the Unsolved Mysteries taping, except me, wanted Von Prague to be successful. They came there to speak with their loved ones. In the post-session interviews, all nine subjects gave Von Prague a positive evaluation, even the few for whom he obviously missed. When I finally told them who I am, what I was doing there, and how cold reading works, most were uninterested, but several walked away. One woman glared at me and told me it was inappropriate to destroy these people's hopes during their time of grief. Herein lies the key to understanding this phenomenon. Life is filled with uncertainties, the most frightening of which is the manner, time, and place of our own demise. For a parent, an even worse fear is the death of one's child, which makes those who have suffered such a loss especially vulnerable to what psychics offer. Under the pressure of reality, we become credulous. We seek reassuring certainties from fortune tellers and palm readers, astrologers, and psychics. Our critical faculties break down under the onslaught of promises and hopes offered to assuage life's great anxieties. When we are vulnerable and afraid, the provider of hope has only to make the promise of an afterlife and offer the flimsiest of proofs. Human credulity will do the rest, as poet Alexander Pope observed when he wrote, Hope springs eternal in the human breast. This hope is what drives all of us, skeptics and believers alike, to be compelled by unsolved mysteries, to seek spiritual meaning in a physical universe, desire immortality, and wish that our hopes for eternity may be fulfilled. It is what pushes many people to spiritualists, New Age gurus, and television psychics, who offer a Faustian bargain. Eternity in exchange for the willing suspension of disbelief, and usually a contribution to the provider's coffers. Hope springs eternal not just for spiritualists, religionists, New Agers, and psychics, but for materialists, atheists, scientists, and yes, even skeptics. The difference is in where we find hope. The first group uses science and rationality when convenient and dumps them when they are not. For this group, any thinking will do as long as it fulfills that deeply rooted human need for certainty. What, then, you may ask, does it mean to be a skeptic? Some people believe that skepticism is rejection of new ideas, or worse, they confuse skeptic with cynic, and think that skeptics are a bunch of grumpy curmudgeons unwilling to accept any claim that challenges the status quo. This is wrong. Skepticism is a provisional approach to claims. Skepticism is a method, not a position. Ideally, skeptics do not go into an investigation closed to the possibility that a phenomenon might be real or that a claim might be true. After examining the evidence, one may be skeptical of the claim or skeptical of the skeptics. The creationists are skeptical of the theory of evolution. So-called Holocaust revisionists are skeptical of the historical research that documents the Holocaust. I am skeptical of these skeptics. 
In other cases, such as recovered memories or alien abductions, I'm skeptical of the claims themselves. It is the evidence that matters, and the scientific method is the best tool we have for determining which claims are true and which are false, or at least offering probabilities of the likelihood of a claim being true or false. Humans are pattern-seeking animals. We search for meaning in a complex, quirky, and contingent world. But we are also storytelling animals, and for thousands of years our myths and religions have sustained us with stories of meaningful patterns, of gods and God, of supernatural beings and mystical forces, of the relationship between humans with other humans and their creators, and of our place in the cosmos. One of the reasons why humans continue thinking magically is that the modern scientific way of thinking is a couple of hundred years old, whereas humanity has existed for a couple of hundred thousand years. What were we doing all those long-gone millennia? How did our brains evolve to cope with the problems in that radically different world? I would like to suggest that over the past 13 millennia, humans have evolved a general belief engine. Under certain conditions, it leads to magical thinking, a magic belief engine. Under different circumstances, it leads to scientific thinking. Allow me to explain. We evolved to be skilled, pattern-seeking, causal-finding creatures. Those who were best at finding patterns, for example, standing upwind of game animals is bad for the hunt, cow manure is good for the crops, left behind the most offspring. We are their descendants. The problem in seeking and finding patterns is knowing which ones are meaningful and which ones are not. Unfortunately, our brains are not always good at determining the difference. The reason is that discovering a meaningless pattern usually does no harm and may even do some good in reducing anxiety in uncertain situations. So we are left with the legacy of two types of thinking errors. Type 1 error, believing a falsehood. Type 2 error, rejecting a truth. Since these errors will not necessarily get us killed, they persist. The belief engine has evolved as a mechanism for helping us to survive because in addition to committing type 1 and type 2 errors, we also commit what we might call a type 1 hit, not believing a falsehood, and a type 2 hit, believing a truth. Once again, type 1 error, believing a falsehood. Type 2 error, rejecting a truth. Type 1 hit, not believing a falsehood. Type 2 hit, believing a truth. Believers in UFOs, alien abductions, ESP, and psychic phenomena have committed a type 1 error in thinking. They are believing a falsehood. Creationists and Holocaust deniers have made a type 2 error in thinking. They are rejecting a truth. It is not that these folks are ignorant or uninformed. They are intelligent but misinformed. Their thinking has gone wrong. Type 1 and 2 errors are squelching type 1 and 2 hits. Fortunately, there is an abundance of evidence that the belief engine is malleable. Critical thinking can be taught. Skepticism is learnable. Type 1 and 2 errors are correctable. I know. I became a skeptic after being a sucker for a lot of these beliefs. I am a born-again skeptic, as it were. Allow me to close this introduction with the final exchange in an interview I had with Georgia Kovanis in the Detroit Free Press, 
who understood the bigger skeptical picture when she printed my two-word answer to her final question, why should we believe anything you say? My response, you shouldn't. Cogita tute. Think for yourself. In 1979, unable to land a full-time teaching job, I found work as a writer for a cycling magazine. The first day on the job, I was sent to a press conference held in honor of a man named John Marino, who had just ridden his bicycle across America in a record 13 days, 1 hour, and 20 minutes. When I asked him how he did it, John told me about special vegetarian diets, fasting, acupressure and acupuncture, chiropractic therapy, negative ions, and a host of weird things with which I was unfamiliar. Being a fairly inquisitive fellow, when I took up cycling as a serious sport, I thought I would try these things to see for myself whether they worked. I once fasted for a week on nothing but a strange mixture of water, cayenne pepper, garlic, and lemon. At the end of the week, John and I rode from Irvine to Big Bear Lake and back, some 70 miles each way. About halfway up the mountain, I collapsed, violently ill from the concoction. John and I once rode out to a health spa near Lake Elsinore for a mud bath that was supposed to suck the toxins out of my body. My skin was dyed red for a week. I got my irises red by an iridologist who told me that the little green flecks in my eyes meant something was wrong with my kidneys. To this day, my kidneys are functioning fine. I kept trying weird things because I figured I had nothing to lose and, who knows, maybe they would increase performance. I tried colonics because supposedly bad things clogged the plumbing and thus decreased digestive efficiency, but all I got was an hour with a hose in a very uncomfortable place. I installed a pyramid in my apartment because it was supposed to focus energy. All I got were strange looks from guests. I started getting massages, which were thoroughly enjoyable and quite relaxing. Then my massage therapist decided that deep tissue massage was best to get lactic acid out of the muscles. That wasn't so relaxing. One guy massaged me with his feet. That was even less relaxing. I tried rolfing, which is really deep tissue massage. That was so painful that I never went back. In 1982, John and I and two other men competed in the first Race Across America, a 3,000-mile nonstop bike race from Los Angeles to New York. In preparation, we went for cytotoxic blood testing because it was supposed to detect food allergies that cause blood platelets to clump together and block capillaries, thus decreasing blood flow. By now, we were a little skeptical of the truth of these various claims, 